Good morning. Good morning. I'm always, a, always a little concerned in terms of time. A lot of people say that I speak fast, but that's because if I speak slow, my sermon will be twice as long, obviously. So uh, I've always been concerned about the time and everybody getting out at noon, but your service starts at 9, so we're going to have no problem getting out at noon. So that'll be great. I want you to open up a couple uh, passages, uh, beginning with uh, where we're going to be at this morning, which is the book of Revelation, chapter 1. But I'd also like for you, uh, if you'd be willing, to turn to um, what would be 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, and John, chapter 16. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and John chapter 16. We're going to be in the book of Revelation primarily for the rest of this week, and uh hope you'll want to be here for this. Book of Revelation chapter 1. We're going to reference 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and John chapter 16. I hope you're ready to work back and forth with your fingers. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning, but whatever translation you have will be fine because we're going to look at some grammar. Try to say Try to stay calm, not to be too excited. We're going to look at some grammar and some original language, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a great time. Book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, verse 4 this morning. The book of Revelation in its most basic form, and, and you're going to hear some of this in review before each message, kind of uh, familiarize us a little bit with the, the book itself. And there's so much uh, to say here in these opening verses. It's almost like at times drinking through a fire hose. It's just there's so much there to, to process. But uh, to kind of give you just uh, an introduction this morning, the book of Revelation has many sections to it, obviously. Uh, the first chapter, you have primarily the introduction and John explaining how he arrived on the island of Patmos and, and how he encountered Christ there. And he was carried away into the Spirit and saw many things. But chapter 1, he gives us some inter- uh, introduction on that. Chapter 2 and chapter 3... Uh, that's given over to the address that Jesus gives to the seven churches. And uh, so you have uh, many details there, seven churches that are listed. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, you enter into this great uh, throne room scene in heaven where God the Father is on the throne, the Spirit's enveloping the throne, and Jesus walks up to the throne. He looks as if he's a lamb having been slain, and he takes this scroll out of the right hand of the Father, and that's 4 and 5. And chapter 6 and 7 is, the, is the, un, uh, the unveiling of the contents of that scroll. And Jesus plucks a seal. And every time he plucks a seal, uh, events take place from the hand of God. So you have many sections. And so I'm walking you through just a little bit of that. And you can see that there are obviously many sections in the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation, in its most basic form, if you were to boil this thing down to its most basic form, you're going to know that the book of Revelation has two sections to it. Okay. The first section is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and the second section is chapter 1, verse 4, to the end of the book, which is a really big section. Now, but that's in its most basic form. The first section is called the prologue, and in fact, if you have the New International Version, you're going to note right above verse 1, there's a little word there in italics that says prologue, and that's a compound Greek word uh, made up of two Greek words. It's made up of the Greek word pro, and the Greek word logos. Okay? Logos, pretty familiar. If you've been around church, you might have uh, heard this word talked about. Logos, we translate. Starts with a W, ends with an erd. Word. Yes, word. Logos is translated word. Pro is translated before. 
Okay? So you have before and word. So if you take these two words and you crunch them together, what John is presenting in the first three verses, the first section of the book of Revelation, is a word before the actual book itself. Okay? So these first three verses aren't necessarily the prophecy proper. They're the words before the prophecy. Now John, and also if you're familiar with John's writings, you're going to know that three out of the five writings in the New Testament have these prologues. Three out of John's, rather, John's uh, five writings in the New Testament. Three of them have uh, prologues to them. Okay? And what a prologue does is it establishes b- boundaries and parameters on the book you're about to read. So before you ever get into one of, uh, you know, his book, he tells you the content. He gives you the tone. He, he prepares you for what he's going to say in the book. And, of course, he does that in the book of Revelation. So we've given a lot of content, we've given a lot of time uh, to these first three verses, and we're going to look at that in the second service. So if you want to stick around, and you can do that. We'll stand in the aisles or pin you to the ceiling or something. We're going to look at that in the second service, and we're going to be looking at that this next week. After you read the prologue, you come into the, the actual formal uh, introduction of the book. And, of course, that's obvious. Uh, John greets, and he introduces himself as the conveyor. He's not the author, but he's the conveyor, the writing down of all that he saw. He introduces himself, John, and of course he, he uh, introduces the specific recipients, not the only uh, recipients, but the specific recipients of the prophecy, which are the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, what we're going to be concerned with this morning, tonight, and Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, uh, are verses 4 and 5. And it's fantastic. All scholars say, if you were to, uh, if you were to look this, uh, this passage up in, in commentaries or, or get on, online or, or whatever uh, you know, Bible study tools you have, you're going to find that most, if not all, scholars are going to tell you that verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of Revelation contain the most unique representation of God in all the New Testament. Okay? And perhaps all the Bible. Uh, obviously... Uh, there's, God is referred to throughout the Bible, but here there's, there's a unique representation. Verses 4 and 5 refer to our God as He is three persons, one God. Okay? We serve one God in three persons. Now, that's Trinity language, and if you've never heard the word Trinity before, I'm sure you have. Uh, Trinity comes from uh, a guy by the name of Tertullian who was picking a word trying to describe this one God in three persons. That's found in several points in scriptures. And he was uh, in the middle of the second century. He began to write like that. So we, have, we, we call this one God in three persons the Trinity. Now this is, uh, this is not the only place that the Trinity is referred to uh, in our Bible, but this is the most unique, you might say. For instance, if you were to go back into Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says after commissioning the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, he tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. So he, there is a representation, again, of the one God in three persons. Now, you need to know that when he calls the three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not literal, you might think uh, or, or say. It's not literal in terms of the names of God. It's not like God's Father like I'm a father and Jesus' son, like my son CJ, whom you're going to meet this week and absolutely love because he's awesome. But my son CJ is the son, and then, of course, you have the Holy Spirit. See, those are not literal. That's not literal in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are functional names. Okay? So what you have is you have the function of the Trinity described. Now, what you have is one God who has one purpose. He has one passion. He has one substance. Okay? 
we have one God, and we have three persons distinctives in that Godhead. And those distinctives are distinctives because of the functions of those three persons. For instance, you have one God who has one purpose, and one of the purposes of that God, obviously, is the salvation of man. But if you have three purposes, uh, or three functions, uh, in that purpose. The function of the Father is to oversee and initiate and to bring about that plan. The, the, the function of the Holy Spirit is to carry that plan, of course, and resource Jesus, who is the third uh, person in the Trinity, and his function is to come down and become man. Okay? And, of course, he is fully God, and, and he is not ceased to be who he is as God, but he comes down and he lives among us. So you have one purpose in three functions. Make sense? So we just cleared up in a couple of minutes what centuries and centuries and centuries have had trouble with. So, wow, revival's going great already. So you have one God and three persons that are presented in this passage. Now, what we're concerned about here in verses 4 and 5, and this is so neat, is that John tells us that grace and peace, he says this in verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, and it's not grace and peace to you from John, it's grace and peace to you from this one God that's presented in three persons. Okay? You have grace and peace extended to you in these three persons. And remember, these three persons are functionally described. So you have grace and peace extended from the Father, grace and peace that's extended from the Son, and grace and peace that's extended from the Holy Spirit. Now you have one purpose, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit extending grace and peace, but that looks different among each member of the Godhead. Okay? Now, if that confuses you, it's really quite simple. Here's what's happening. Grace and peace is extended to us from the Father, and this is how his function, this is how he is described in the passage. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come. So the Father, who is and was and is to come, is extending grace and peace. And it looks really unique, and it's peculiar to him. The second member of the Godhead that's talked about happens to be the actual third member, which is the Trinity, and he's described as from the seven spirits before his throne. Okay? So he is extending grace and peace as well to the seven churches. And the last member of the Godhead, of course, is Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is extending grace and peace. So you have the purpose of extending grace and peace from God, and it's, it, it's described in three different ways as coming from each member of the Godhead. Okay? You're all giving me the same look, look, so you're just incredibly approved or confused. And I am a bit confusing. I want to look at you this morning specifically at the Holy Spirit and how he is extending grace and peace to the seven churches. Now, I found it interesting, when you begin to look again at uh, the Trinity as it's presented, especially in the New Testament, it, he's always, God is always referred to as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in that order. The first member is God, the second member as the Son, the third member as the Holy Spirit. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time he's referred to in the New Testament, that's the way he's referred to. Except for here. And here it's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. And that's not by accident. It's not one of the things that we're going to look at this week, and I, I really believe this, that the Scripture is not like us. Okay? And we cannot read Scripture like the way we read, for instance, our emails. Okay? You know, we do emails. I don't know if you do emails. 
Okay, praise the Lord. So I don't know uh, if, if you can understand that, but see, on emails, you get this email from a, from a teen or from a person, and you say, hey, how are you doing? And are you really concerned? Are you really asking how they're doing? <laughs> not really. In fact, if they were going to tell you how they were doing, you'd be like, listen, this is not a good time. Tell me later. I do care. But, you know, we write just kind of like with formality. Hey, how are you doing? All good. I give you a little update here and there. Hey, praise the Lord. Talk to you later. It's a little short snippet. It comes quickly. And that's how we write. That's not how they write. So when they write something, and I believe this, and we're going to look at this this week, see, when you, what you find in Scripture is not by accident. In fact, there is example given over and over and over, even from the mouth of Jesus, that what you have in Scripture is not the opinions of man, but it's God revealing himself to man. So this stuff isn't casual, you understand. See, this is not just, you know, email type, type of surface level communication. So when we read in the passage, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, he is saying something to us, and it's also supported within the passage, that the Holy Spirit, the third member, is actually crunched in between the first and the second. And the Holy Spirit, and it makes sense, because the Holy Spirit plays a mediatory kind of role between God and man. What we found, and a lot of this probably old material to you, or old news to you, was, was really revelation to me, is that the way God communicates to man, the way he inter interrelates with man throughout both the New Testament and Old Testament is always God the Father through the Holy Spirit manifested in Christ. See, if God wants to speak to you, it's going to be God through the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Now, that's obvious in the New Testament. God speaks in Jesus Christ. But it's also true in the Old Testament because we know everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is wanting, God is wanting to communicate to you through the Holy Spirit in Jesus. Okay? And I want to talk to you about that. Now, if you're confused thus far, it's going to get really, really simple and it's going to get uh, more pointed. Um, there are two ways in which we want to look at this. We're going to look at this this morning and we're going to look at this this evening. God communicates. There is a, there is a role, a function of the Holy Spirit in taking from God and revealing it to man. There is a, there's a movement from God through the Holy Spirit to man, but there is also, this is what we're going to look at tonight, there is a movement from man through the Holy Spirit into God. There's two different functions that the Holy Spirit serves. This morning, I'm going to look with you specifically at God the Father through the Holy Spirit as it is revealed to man. Okay? First aspect uh, we want to look at is going to look at the grammar. The grammar of verses 4 and 5. Grace and peace. What do those terms mean? Um, I was kind of uh, in, intrigued when we began to, uh, when I went to college and began to study Greek. Um, I learned uh, that not only in their culture, but in our culture, when you take words and phrases and you bring them within the confines of the church, you take words and phrases and you bring them in here uh, within our relationship with God, those words take on different meanings. Uh, for instance, marriage. You and I should agree that marriage outside the church is not what we call marriage inside the church. We know that, obviously. I mean, what we call marriage here, in terms of what God wants and what God has called us to uh, you know, call marriage, is not what they call marriage outside of the church. Love inside of the church is not what we call love outside of the church. Being a father, and I have a 20-month-old son, and we're working this out, 
but being a father as it's described inside the church is different than being a father outside the church. So when you take word, and it's the same word in our culture, but when you bring that inside the confines of the church, it takes on a different meaning. Now, when you get into, uh, for instance, the scriptures, you're going to note that, obviously, most of the New Testament is written in Greek. And you're going to have Greek words that in secular culture mean something, but when they're brought in the confines of the church, they take on a different meaning. That's the case with both grace and peace. The word grace has a secular Greek meaning, and it has a meaning within the church that's fed more through like a Hebrew idea, Hebrew mindset. The word grace, for instance, if you were to go back in the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, translated in English, obviously, so we can read it. The Old Testament... Uh, Hebrew, when it's translated into Greek, which was the New Testament modern day's language, when the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek, you find this Greek word throughout the Old Testament that's grace. Okay, Grace is found throughout the Old Testament. The Greek word, we translate grace. If you look at that word and how it replaced the Hebrew word, it replaces the Hebrew word favor. And what I'm trying to tell you then is, is that the word grace here in our passage has the meaning of favor to it. A Christian concept has the word favor to it. And I found that interesting because favor is where we get our word favorite or favoritism. So the Hebrew, now get this, this is so neat, the Hebrew idea of grace is literally when grace is extended to you uh, from God, he is showing you favoritism. He's showing that you're his favorite. So sit up in your seat, put your shoulders back. See, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Hey, God is playing favorites with me. He's saying the favoritism on my behalf. See, when he is looking at, and we're going to get to some of this this week, and it's a phenomenal concept, but when God's speaking to these seven churches, he's showing them favoritism. He's saying, oh, you're my favorite. So somehow, in the eyes of God, mankind is his favorite among all creation. And obviously, that's not hard to understand. We have a redemptive plan. We have been, uh, hey, God has sought to redeem us even above that of the angels. He didn't seek to redeem the angels. There was no redemption, shake your heads, there was no redemption plan for the angels. Unless I am unaware, I mean, unless you know one that's outside of the Bible. There's no redemptive plan for the angels. So God played favoritism with us. He's showing favoritism towards us. Grace, that's what that word means. The word peace literally means absence of war. That's a Greek culture thing. In other words, in the common Greek secular you know, marketplace of their day, that word peace literally meant the absence of war or the absence of the havoc of war. Now, you bring that with inside the church, the word peace doesn't necessarily mean absence of war. It has to do, especially in the New Testament, as an inward peace as a direct result of my relationship with God. Because of God, I have an inward, calm, resting peace in my life. That is what's being, grace and peace, okay? Favor and an inward peace in my life is what's being extended to these seven churches. Now, it's being extended, those two things are being extended by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving grace and peace to these seven churches. And it looks, uh, it looks particular in a couple different ways. The first way is, has to do with the grammar of the passage. Now, the Holy Spirit is described in verse 4 as the seven spirits, at least my translation reads, the seven spirits before his throne. Seven spirits. 
Um, when you look at that phrase, seven spirits, and then the phrase that's with it, before his throne, those are descriptive, those are descriptive statements describing who uh, the third member of the Trinity is. The Holy Spirit is described, therefore, as seven spirits, and he's described as before his throne. Okay? That's his description. And it's interesting that both seven and spirits are in the plural. Okay? So the Holy Spirit, and we know he's one, okay, he's one person, he's not seven persons, he's one person within the Godhead, okay? He is described as being seven, seven spirits. And you not only have that here, but you have that occurring four times in the book of Revelation. It's referred to here in chapter 1, verse 4. It's also referred to, if you don't mind flipping your Bible one page, uh, in your Bible one page, to chapter 3, verse 1. And in chapter 3, verse 1, in the address to Sardis, Jesus says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Same one. So the Holy Spirit is referred to as seven spirits. Not only here in chapter 3, verse 1, but in chapter 4, verse 5. It says, from the throne, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, uh, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles of, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Okay? Again, seven. Uh, the last one is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6. And in verse 6 it says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He, that's Jesus, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay? Seven spirits of God. I find it, uh, and again, I don't want to be careful. I don't want to offend anybody. Of course, I probably wouldn't offend you. I always find it interesting how church people, and I'm a church person, sometimes how we squirm to answer everything. I find it interesting sometimes how it's sometimes it's not okay just to say, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, Jesus did. They asked him, Jesus, when are you coming back? He didn't say, well, you know, that's difficult, and, and give some answer. He just said, I don't know. <laughs> Beats me. <clears throat> so, uh, I think sometimes it can be difficult to just say, hey, I, I'm not sure. And I find it interesting to watch, especially commentators in the book of Revelation, taking some of the things going on in the book of Revelation and trying to answer that. Uh, the seven spirits of God, that's a difficulty for translators. Because literally, if just grammatically, if you were to read that statement grammatically, what you would come away with is that God, the Holy Spirit, is seven persons. And obviously we know he's not seven persons. So how do you describe that? Some have said, well... He, he's literally not referred to that this, this, you know, in verse 4, this is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the same language that's used in chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. And chapter 8, verse 2 says, And I saw seven angels standing before God. And they say, well, that, that, that's what that is. They're not talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about seven angels. I don't agree with that. Okay, the Holy Spirit, first of all, is not an angel. So we can cast that one out. Another one is, and for time's sake, I won't, uh, I won't go back and read it, but in the book of I Isaiah, there's uh, qualities of the Holy Spirit that are listed. But it's really, it, it takes some work to get seven out of that. <laughs> okay? it, it seems difficult to get seven out of that. Probably what most scholars suggest, and I agree with, is that there is a connection between the seven spirits and the seven churches in Asia Minor. You know what I found most interesting about the book of Revelation in the seven churches? That there were more than seven churches in the province of Asia. There were more than seven. In fact, there was closer to 12 or 13. The church of uh, Heropolis, 
and the church of Colossae and the church of Laodicea. The Laodicean is the only church mentioned here. They were all within like 50 miles of each other. In fact, if you go, <laughs> this is so neat, if you go look in the book of Colossians chapter 4, the last verse, you don't have to do it now, what Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, listen, after you read your letter, walk just a few miles down the road and give it to Laodicea. And by the way, Laodicea is to give you the letter that I wrote to them. So obviously there's more than seven churches in the province of Asia. And you'd scratch your head and go, well, then why does he single out these seven? Well, again, you have to look in the New Testament that oftentimes letters, when they were written to one church, they were written to all the churches in that community. And you know, also it's interesting that in their day, these seven churches followed the Roman postal road throughout Asia Minor. So it would have been really easy for these letters to be circulated among and so what you have is then also combined that the word seven in the book of Revelation has to do with fullness. It's God's number, fullness or completeness or even adequacy. And that's oftentimes contrasted with Satan's number. And Satan's number is six, which is incomplete. He's not adequate. He's not full. So numbers in the book of Revelation are significant. So what you have most likely pretty obviously, is that when, when John describes the uh, Holy Spirit as the seven spirits, he's describing the Holy Spirit as the full and complete, adequate Spirit of God for these seven churches in the province of Asia. He's talking about the fullness of the, of the church that's in the, in, in the province of Asia and the fullness and adequate Spirit ministering to those churches. Okay? First aspect of the seven spirits. Now, he also has not just the seven spirits before his throne, but also the phrase, before his throne. Before is not what I thought it meant. For instance, I can say, hey, I'm standing before this front pew, and I'm standing before this gentleman right here. But I'm really not standing before them over there. I'm kind of like kitty corner or caddy corner. We're in Indiana, I forget which one it is. But I'm standing kind of catty corner to them. I'm not necessarily before them. Well, that's not what that word before means. Before means in the midst of, or in the presence of, or standing in the vicinity of something, or even in the sight of something. So what you have is this full, complete, adequate Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who is in the midst of the throne. And the word throne literally means chief chair. My wife has one of those. Um, it's the chief's chair. It's, it's the one in charge. It's, it's the one in authority. <laughs> She's not in this first service, so I can, I can say that. Uh, so you have this presentation of the third person. Now, this is so neat. Let's put this together. You have a presentation of the third person of the Trinity, okay? who is full and complete. He is adequate for what needs to take place in the life of these seven churches, he is in the presence of, he is in the midst of, not just the seven churches, but also in the, uh, among the throne of God, among the authority where God sets and reigns. Okay? And because he's adequate and complete and able to envelop both the, uh, the Godhead, the throne of God, and man, there are things that are communicated from God to man. Okay? Specifically these. Number one. I want to talk to you about two quick things. The Holy Spirit, in his complete and fullness, serves as a revelation. He is literally the, the avenue by which God reveals himself to man. Okay? I asked you to mark 1 Corinthians. If you'd be willing, I want you to turn back there just briefly. Uh, this is really evident, especially in the Corinthian letters. Obviously, there's several places in the New Testament. But in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians... You have Paul, 
And we're going to come back here as well, so you're going to need to keep this mark. But Paul describes the role of the Holy Spirit and how we even know about God. See, we can't even know about God without God, obviously. He says in verse 6, talking about the wisdom by which he's speaking. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. He goes on to talk about none of the rulers of this age. And, of course, when he's talking about the rulers, he's talking about the intellectually superior, the kings and all of those kinds of people. No one understood it, not even the leaders of Israel. Verse 10, he says, But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. So the revelation of who he is comes through the Holy Spirit. He says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. uh, Who among man knows the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, this complete and adequate Spirit, Okay? who is adequate for the seven churches, he is taking from God and making it known. You with me? He's taking from God and making it known to man. So God, God the Father is speaking, he's communicating, he's revealing himself through the Holy Spirit to these seven churches in Christ. Okay? In Christ. Now, you have that in 1 Corinthians, and if you would be willing, again, I want you to keep that marked, uh, stick a, a finger in there or a tie or something, and I'd like you to flip back a few pages and I asked you to mark John chapter 16. I'll just be frank with you. When I, uh, when, I was a, when I was a young Christian, I got saved in 1995, and I began to read the Bible, and I began to think and process uh, through some of what I was reading, I kind of felt cheated in a certain way. And I, I felt cheated in that the disciples got to hang out with, they got to see, you know, Jesus, hang out with Jesus, they got the lay beside him. I wonder if they heard him snore. Probably did. And uh, they saw him sweat. They saw him get tired. You know, They saw his feet hurt. They saw him go, oh, my aching back. They probably saw him, Peter, would you please be quiet and sit down? They saw him at all those kinds of points. They saw him in the heat of the day. They, they saw and lived with Jesus. And I always kind of, uh, my, my, my reasoning was that, well, hey, uh, since that took place, they knew Jesus better than I, than I can know Jesus. You realize that's not true? And also, do you realize that they, (laughs) think about this, even though they lived with him for three years, they could not know him without the Holy Spirit like you and I know him. That literally, think about this, what God destined is is not that we would see from the outside and know God, but that literally God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, would come down and live in our body and literally reveal to us from the inside who he is. And we see that in Jesus in a way that even the disciples didn't until they, reached, uh, until they received the Holy Spirit. As you Mark John chapter 16. Jesus has been talking for uh, some time, uh, specifically verse 14, about all that's going to take place and that all that God is doing is unfolding. And of course, they're overwhelmed. In fact, in verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you. 
Okay, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And what, what that means, bear is mentally. Hey, they can't fit it all in. They're overwhelmed. He goes, I have much more to say to you, but you can't handle it now. You physically cannot handle it. And he says, going on, he says, but, verse 13, when the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. And He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Then listen to this. He says, verse 16, In a little while you will see me no more. Then, after a little while, of course, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will see me. Okay, you will see me. Those two different words for see are differently, are different words. You've probably heard this preached before. That literally the disciples, think about this, the disciples knew Jesus in a fuller, more complete way after his death than even before his death. And the Holy Spirit literally comes and he is adequate to reveal the Father in Christ. Okay? So the first thing we find uh, in Scripture is that God the Father reveals Himself in Christ to the Holy Spirit. Okay? All that God is ever going to say, He says in His Word, which is Jesus. And that is made possible through the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to tell you is, is He wants to speak to you. And you can know Him. You can know Him in His fullness through the Holy Spirit. That God can literally teach us. Uh, now that tells us a number of things. First off, it tells us that knowing God is beyond the academic realm. If you're like me and you're not too sharp, which is likely, I guess, uh, there's still hope for you. <laughs> I guess there's hope for me. Because my knowledge of him and, and preaching and knowing the word, do you realize, oh, we can't go into this for, because of time, but the Bible is talked about over and over and over, especially by Paul in 1 Corinthians, not as an academic pursuit, but as a revelation of God. So you don't need to be brilliant. <laughs> be encouraged. You don't need to be brilliant in order to know him in the word. It's the Holy Spirit that makes him known. Okay? So the first, uh, the first um, function of the Holy Spirit in extending grace and peace to these seven churches and in extending grace and peace to you and I is that God, through the Holy Spirit, reveals himself to us. Now the second aspect of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians, the second function of the Holy Spirit is not just to reveal God to man, but literally He resources man. I found this so neat. The word grace that the Holy Spirit is extending to these seven churches, okay? Grace and peace to you. The word grace is the Greek word charis. Do you know what the word gift is? The word gift is charisma. You just add ma to the end of it. So the Holy Spirit extends grace Charis, and when we receive it, it takes on the form of a gift, charisma. Charisma. So the gifts of the Spirit, <laughs> think about this, the gifts of the, of the Spirit, hey, that is the extension of grace from the Holy Spirit. How is grace, uh, how is grace dumped on you? How is grace extended to you from God's Holy Spirit? Gifts, man. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How does He shed grace on you? Oh! Literally, He takes who He is. He takes to the Father and literally indwells us and we have the gifts of the Spirit which are manifested in our life. Self-control is a gift of the Spirit. 
So God says, oh, I want you to be self-controlled. I don't want you to be controlled by your own bodily drives. I don't want you to be controlled by your emotions. I don't want you living in anger. I don't want you living in fear. I don't want you being pulled by your, you know, by the, the, the facilities of your body and be a slave to your body like an animal. I don't want you to be that way. So the Holy Spirit dumps grace upon you, which means he comes in your body and enables you to live in a way you could never live before. Is you an example of that? Self-control, again. Uh, I had the hardest time uh, as a young man. I was in the military as well. I'm a veteran, and I was a Marine, and of course uh, I had anger problems. And as a Christian, I consistently fell into anger. And the Holy Spirit, God, said, Hey, God the Father said, Jeremiah, that's not, hey, that's not how, I, how I destined for you to live. And that's certainly not how Christ lived. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, came and lived in my life. And self-control was me turning to him and saying, I, hey, would you come and control what I was never able to control? Would you come in my life and subdue what I was never able to, to subdue? Would you control in my life, which is a natural product of who you are, would you control in my life what I was never able to control? So resourcing, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, resources us and enables us to live a life that we could never live. Now, oh man, you've got to love first services. I don't know what that means to you, and I don't know what that does to you, but when I was, uh, my wife told me that she was pregnant, of course we were excited and I was happy and it was wonderful, but I was also uh, enormously intimidated because I've met a lot of preacher's kids before. <laughs> no offense, Pastor. I've, let, I've met a lot of preacher's kids and I've, I've met several that uh, know all the insides of the church. They know when to stand up. They know when to sit down. They know all the right answers. And yet I've met some that don't know Jesus. So it's possible to be in the church and be religious and not Christian. And I felt inadequate. I felt overwhelmed. I felt like, you know, I'm not up to the task on this. Would it be something? Would it be something? If God already anticipated that and knew that and said, I want to come and not stand over there and teach you, but I want to come and live within your body. And I want to come and enable you to raise your son in a way that you never could by yourself. I want to reveal myself to you. I want you to know me and the kind of father that I am. And in knowing me and the kind of father that I am, I'm dumping grace upon you, Jeremiah. And literally, I'm going to come down in your life and I'm going to control what you never could control. I'm going to pour through you on the life of your son and the life of your wife. And the Holy Spirit is what... I mean, our musician, before I came up to preach, was singing about walking through the storms of life. You and I were never to go through the storms of life on our own. But we were always to be resourced. And he was to move into the literal pores of our flesh and he was to enable us to live a life that we were never able to live. And I want that this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word. How do I respond when the role of the Holy Spirit was to help me live a life, was to come inside and, and enable me to live a life that I was never able to live before? I want to respond to that this morning. I want to let you do in me all that you dream and all that you've longed to do. Reveal, reveal, Father, yourself through the Holy Spirit in Christ in my life. Reveal yourself to me. Move within the confines of my life and let love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control be evident. 
let that just spill out of me in my home and in my church and in the McDonald's drive-thrus of my life. We want to know you and the power of who you are. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.